Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. And that's also our text. Revelation 11, beginning at verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire." And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed from the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is the word of the Lord. So this passage is about the calling of the church to proclaim the message of Jesus and endure persecution because of that. It's also about how God protects the church and judges the enemies of the church. The message is conveyed in symbols that are rooted in earlier parts of the Bible. It's likely that just by reading through these verses, most readers, uh, most people will have little of any idea what they are all about. John expected his readers to have some knowledge of the Old Testament as well as some knowledge of how the Old Testament symbols are fulfilled in the New Testament. He probably expected the teachers of the church to do some research and thinking 
and help the membership of the church to understand the message. Thankfully, the teachers of the church have been doing that ever since the book was first written, so we have excellent commentaries to help us to understand the message of these verses without having to do all that research and thinking on our own. And because of that, unpacking the meaning of these verses is not all that difficult. I'll first give a quick summary of of the meaning of these verses, just touching on the main ideas, and then we'll think a little about what this all means for us in the second half of the sermon. So first John tells us that he was given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. The temple is the church. The Old Testament temple was the place where God dwelt with his people. The fulfillment of the temple in the New Testament is the church where God dwells in the midst of his people. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes to the Corinthians, you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you. The measuring of the temple and the altar and the the people who worship there refers to God's presence and his knowledge of his people. The ESV Study Bible says this measuring of persons shows both God's protection and his ownership and suggests that the temple itself symbolizes the saints. John is told, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So God's people are being, belong to him, and they are protected. Those on the outside are not. Here they are called the nations. They stand for those who reject God's claims and his mercy, and they will persecute the church. They will trample the holy city, which is Jerusalem, which stands for the church. They will do so for 42 months. 42 months stands for a significant but limited period of time. The commentators give all kinds of background for that conclusion, I trust you will be satisfied as I am to know that there are good reasons for that conclusion without knowing exactly what they are. That kind of study is rather tedious, and for us it's good enough just to have the results. Verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for uh, 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. The two witnesses stand for the church, The reasons there are two is that God said in the Old Testament that truth was to be established by two witnesses. The two witnesses prophesy. That's the main idea of the passage. It's about the church proclaiming the word of God in the context of a hostile world. 1260 days is the same as 42 months. And the meaning is the same, a significant but limited period of time. The witnesses are clothed with sackcloth. They are in mourning. Old Testament people wore sackcloth when they were in mourning. The church knows ahead of time that many will not heed God's message, and there is sorrow associated with bringing a message of salvation and judgment when so many will reject 
the salvation and therefore experience the judgment. The text emphasizes that the church brings God's message with authority. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. The church is appointed by God to bring his message to the world, and it does so with the authority of God. The proclamation of God's message by the church is a very weighty matter. It is often treated with disdain, but the reality is that God himself is speaking to the world through the church. The passage continues to develop the picture. Two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands who stand before the Lord of the earth. That imagery comes from the book of Zechariah, and the main ideas there are that the lamps give light, and the light comes from the Holy Spirit. The olive trees provide oil for the lamp so that the lamps can give light. The oil stands for the Holy Spirit, so the church is like a light in the world, and the light comes from the Holy Spirit. The next few verses make the point that God's witnesses have the power to bring plagues upon the, on the wicked that help to confirm the truthfulness and the seriousness of God's message, verses 5 and 6. And if anyone would harm them, that is the two witnesses that symbolize the church, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the, they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, these two verses allude to Moses and Elijah, who were both prophets who brought God's message to people who did not want to hear it. Both Moses and Elijah were given power to bring plagues upon those who rejected the word of God, and those plagues serve to reinforce the spoken word. The church also has the power to bring plagues. We see that in the beginning of, of, of Revelation 8, <clears throat> where the, the saints pray to God, and God sends all kinds of plagues upon the earth. The point of the symbolism is here is that the various plagues that fall upon those who reject the word of God uh, <clears throat> go along with the spoken word to confirm the message. With Moses and Elijah, the plagues and the drought went along with the prophetic word and were part of the same message, and so it is with the church and the plagues that God sends upon the unrepentant as a result of the prayers of the church. <clears throat> and so it is in the, in the period between the first and second comings of Christ. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, part of the way that God answers those prayers is to send his judgments upon the wicked to reinforce the message of salvation and judgment that the church is called to bring to the world. When we the church warn of God's judgments upon the wicked and pray that the Lord will bless our message, 
One of the ways that God does that is by sending a pandemic or a hurricane or an earthquake or a drought. When we pray that God will cause the people of the world to listen to our message, one of the ways that God answers those prayers is by sending some kind of plague to show the world that he is serious about his warnings of judgment and to encourage it to repent. But the people who do not repent are bothered by that. They do not like to be told that Jesus is Lord and that they must repent, even though the message comes with the offer of salvation for those who would repent and believe on Jesus. The unbelieving world resents God's message because God is calling it to repent of its sins, and they do not want to do that. And so they hate and persecute the messengers, and God allows them to do that. Revelation eleven seven through 10. And when they, that is the two witnesses which stand for the church, when they have finished their testimony, <clears throat> the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their, resurrect- their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples, tribes, and languages, and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So this is about the persecution of the church. The beast which rises from the bottomless pit is the demonic power that stands behind the powers on earth that persecute the church. One commentator writes that the beast, quote, represents those anti-Christian powers in the world which seek to silence the church's witness, resulting in the apparent triumph of the forces of evil. The beast in the book of Revelation symbolizes earthly powers that are indwelt by the demonic. The dead bodies of the two witnesses lie in the street. The world gazes upon them and has a party and refuses to let them be buried. This emphasizes the hatred and the contempt that the unrepentant world feels towards the church because of its message. Sometimes the persecuting world has literally treated the bodies of the martyrs with such contempt, but the symbolism does not, is not always fulfilled literally. The symbolism of leaving dead bodies on the street and rejoicing over them powerfully conveys the idea of how much the unbelieving world loathes the people of God because of God's message. The end of verse 10 tells us why the unrepentant world has such a deep loathing for the church. Quote, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. God's message for the world to the world is good news for those who receive it and turn to the Lord, but it is profoundly disturbing to those who reject it. God claims to be the God of heaven and earth, 
to whom all people are accountable, and that infuriates those who refuse to submit to God's authority. God's call to repentance is despised by those who are insisting on living according to their own desires. God's call to people to humble themselves before him enrages those who cling to their pride. God's insistence on sexual purity galls those who have thrown off all sexual restraint. God's insistence that Jesus is the only way is despised by those who believe that there is no one overarching truth and that everyone can have their own truth. And when the church proclaims that message, it torments those who dwell on the earth. And that means that persecution comes from a very deep place. The message of God cuts the world deeply. Those who submit to it are saved. Those who refuse it are tormented by it. And hatred comes from the very core of their being. So the dead, the dead bodies of the martyrs lie on the street while those who dwell on the earth celebrate and have a party. But then the two witnesses rise from the dead. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. Verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Three and a half days is a short period of time. The martyred saints rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, refers to the final resurrection. The martyred, they will be vindicated before the world, and at the same time, God's judgment will fall upon the wicked. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Whatever this text refers to exactly, it is clear that the enemies of God will not win. They will face terror at the end and will end up giving glory to God. As Paul says in Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So we have a picture painted in these verses. We just skimmed over them so that we can understand the main symbolism and how it applies to the church. It's possible, of course, to go through these verses phrase by phrase to understand the details more thoroughly, but we do not need that amount of detail to get the main message which is not that complicated or difficult to understand. God protects his church. God's, the church is God's witness on earth and is called to bring God's message to the world. <clears throat> this passage focuses on the part of the world that rejects God's message. The confrontation between the church and the world is a violent confrontation. The church, by its prayers, calls down God's judgments upon the world to reinforce the message. 
in a way that is similar to the way in which Elijah and Moses did. The world responds to that hated message by trying to snuff it out. It makes war on the church. The witnesses are killed. The world celebrates. But in the end, the church rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and the world is forced to recognize the truth of the message. But then it's too late and the final judgments are falling. Now, when we apply this symbolic story to us today, we must understand that the killing of the two witnesses and all the talk about their dead bodies does not mean that every single member of the church is killed for their faith. This is a symbol for persecution, and persecution ranges from torture, uh, from insults rather, to torture and death. Jesus says, blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There never was a time either in the Bible or beyond the Bible when all Christians were murdered for their faith. There have always been a range, there's always been a range in different places and different periods of history. The Bible does seem to indicate that it will get worse as we approach the end. And while we do not experience the worst persecution in our part of the world, there is an awful lot of persecution in the world right now, and many people are dying for their faith. So what are we to do with a passage like this? Well, first of all, it shows that God's protection does not mean that we will not be killed for our witness. The whole business at the beginning of the chapter about John measuring and being told to measure the temple and those who worship there, that's all about God's protection for his people. And yet the verses, the next verses describe the unbelieving world, killing the two, two uh, witnesses and desecrating their dead bodies. When the Bible talks about God protecting his people, the reference is always ultimately to salvation, the preservation of their faith, the resurrection of their bodies, and their vindication before the world. God may protect us from the more severe forms of persecution, and certainly it's legitimate for us to pray for that. But even if God allows us to be martyred, he's still protecting us if we are faithful unto death. So God's protection may mean that we are not killed for our faith, but it also may mean that we are enabled to give our lives rather than deny God's message. Either way, God's protection is salvation, the guarantee of being with the Lord forever, no matter what happens to us in this earthly life. And so if we look at our lives from the perspective of this passage, it's very clear that God calls us to be his witnesses, to prophesy God's message to the world, and that that call puts us in harm's way as far as our earthly comforts are concerned. God sends his church into the world with a message that is offensive to the world. 
It is, in fact, good news, but it takes a miracle for anyone to see it as good news. Sometimes God does that miracle and opens people's eyes to see the good news so that they come to Jesus and are saved. But if God does not do that, the message is very offensive to those who hear it. And as a result, those who bring that message are often considered enemy number one. God's witnesses who bring God's message are considered to be a threat to the goals of governments or movements in society, like the current progressive movement in the West, which is trying to shape society in a way that is very different from God's message. Christians are often considered to be dangerous and a harmful influence in society, whether that is in China, for instance, where the government views faithful Christianity as a threat to its own power and influence, or in Canada, where the progressive movement is aggressively promoting the celebration of, a various, of various lifestyles that God's message condemns and calls to repentance. So this passage is showing us that God has sent the church into the world with a message that is so offensive to many that the world will hate them for it and in some instances find great joy in killing them. This idea is conveyed by Jesus to his disciples when he said in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus also makes it clear that the world will treat his followers in the same way that it treated him. In John 15, 20, Jesus said to his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And it turns out that just as God's way of salvation involves the suffering, uh, the suffering and death of Jesus, so God's way of bringing that salvation to the world involves the suffering and death and dying of the church. The significance of our suffering and dying is not exactly the same as the significance of Jesus' suffering and dying, but there is a relationship between the two. And so this passage, Revelation 11, 1 through 14, tells us what we can expect when we bring God's message to the world. We can expect to be hated by the world. We can expect some level of persecution, even if it does not end up that we are actually murdered. This passage is telling us that bringing God's message will provoke murderous hatred that in some cases will lead to murder, and in other cases, some kind of abuse that falls short of murder. And we have to be ready for either. Being a Christian means being willing to die because of the message. It means belonging to a people who are so despised by the world that some of us die because of the message. 
It means being willing to imitate Jesus, who gave his life so that others might be saved. We are also called to give our lives so that others may be saved, even if Jesus' sacrifice has a deeper meaning than ours. So what does that mean for us? In the short term, it's not likely to mean that we will be killed for our faith. But the idea of giving our lives in order to get the message out means different things in different settings. In our settings, it means being willing to suffer the hatred and scorn of the world in order to get the message out. That will mean being willing to be public about our relationship to Jesus and his church. It will mean confessing our faith before men and not hiding the fact that we are Christians. It, will, it may mean having to take a stand that triggers the abuse of the world. It will definitely mean making sacrifices in order to be part of the church's witness to the world. There are different ways to give our lives to contribute to the church's witness to the world. Some of us are called to give their lives literally, but all of us are called to give our lives for Jesus, to be part of God's witness to the world. And to give our lives for Jesus is to live them in such a way that his kingdom comes first. And that means Things like enjoying his gifts with thanksgiving, but also making sacrifice in order to contribute to the mission of the church to bring the message to the world. If we are called to be willing to die to get the message out, surely that includes sacrificing an evening at home in order to pray together for the success of the gospel and sacrificing significantly, substantially in order to support the mission of the church, and sacrificing time in other ways to support the mission. The willingness to literally die for Christ implies the willingness to make sacrifices in other ways if God is not calling us to suffer in that particular way of uh, martyrdom. So as we look at this passage and see how God sent the church to bring his message to the world, which does not want to hear it, even if that means martyrdom, surely we can see that a call to die in less dramatic ways for the same purpose is what God is calling us to do. The fact that God has so arranged things that the kingdom advances through suffering and dying Uh, first by Jesus and then by his followers. But that does not mean that the Christian life is a downer and nothing but sadness and gloom and pain. Our text ends with the martyred being raised from the dead and descending into heaven. The people who persecuted them experience the judgment of God. The people who were persecuted enter the presence of God And that is infinitely worth it. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And the author of the letter to the Hebrews wrote in chapter 12, 1 and 2, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the message of our text as well. Suffering is as, rather, suffering as part of advancing the mission of the church is an important part of the Christian life as the Bible describes it. It may mean martyrdom, but if it does not mean martyrdom, literally it certainly means a form of martyrdom by which we sacrifice our lives for the mission of the church. That's a reality, and it is not pleasant, but neither is it dark and depressing. It is suffering for a great purpose, the salvation of the world. There is no greater reason to make sacrifices than to be part of what God is doing by contributing to the mission of the church to proclaim the message of God to the world. And our text holds out the hope, the joy set before us, the resurrection from the dead, and the blessedness of being with God. So let's consider our lives in the light of these verses. We should not be surprised by the hatred of the world. God has sent us to face that hatred, even to the point of death, because the salvation of the world involves the suffering of the Savior and the suffering of his followers. In both cases, that suffering is endured for the joy that is set before us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we acknowledge that this is not the most pleasant theme for us to think about, and yet we also acknowledge that it is a very pervasive theme in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to embrace it as you would have us embrace it. Lord Jesus, you, you tell us uh, to count the cost, and that call of counting the cost has meaning in the light of this theme that we have been thinking about this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to die to self in order to advance the mission. Lord, we thank you that this is not something new to us and that we know of this in one way or another or to varying degrees in our lives because you are our God and you are working in us. But Lord, we pray that you would use also this passage and our reflection on it to help us to examine our lives in the light of your calling and to become more willing to sacrifice in order that more people may hear the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that this call to suffer is not something that is dark and that, is, um, th- that has no hope to it because, Lord, we're grateful that, uh, that you do hold out the hope before us as a way of enduring the shame 
and the difficulty, and we pray that you would enable us to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, also in that way. In his name we pray, amen.